Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. I'm Malik Alim, and Bill Ayers and I are gathered here with you for our seminar. As always, big thanks to Tom Morello for our chosen anthem, Let Freedom Ring, and for jolting us awake and grounding us in courage for the work ahead. We're transmitting, as always, on the Freedom Frequency, calling on you to join us as we tune in to first and fundamental questions like what is freedom and how do we get free? We look uneasily at the world we've inherited and search for spaces that could be or should be, but are not yet. I'm broadcasting from the traditional lands of the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, and the Odawa peoples, and Bill joins us from the traditional lands of the Huppa, the Yurok, and the Karuk. We acknowledge and thank them and honor the history of stolen land and resources, the history of the mass American genocide, and we pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love. This is a special, urgent edition of our podcast produced in response to the roiling crisis in Haiti. Bill joined us a bit later, but he's in the wilderness now with sketchy Wi-Fi, so I'm carrying on in spite of the obstacles. Let me begin with a few words from Edwidge Dantica, the acclaimed Haitian-American writer who was born in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and migrated to Brooklyn as a nine-year-old. Dantica writes, I think Haiti is a place that suffers so much from neglect that people only want to hear about it when it's at its extreme, and that's what they end up knowing about it. There is so much more to know. Later, she writes, misery won't touch you gentle. It always leaves its thumbprints on you. Sometimes it leaves them for others to see, sometimes for nobody but you to know of. And then these words to hold on to. Pretend that this is a time of miracles and we believe in them. Indeed we do. At this point, we typically prompt you to engage in a stream of consciousness free write. But I'll switch it up here and ask you to draw a freehand sketch of the Caribbean Sea and the Greater Caribbean Archipelago, including at least Haiti in the Dominican Republic, Cuba, Puerto Rico, Jamaica, Antigua, Grand Cayman, Trinidad and Tobago, Nassau, and St. Martin. All right, start sketching, and we'll be right here when you get back. We have a very special guest with us today who will help us begin to understand Haiti and why every freedom lover in the world should have eyes on Haiti right now and always. Walter Riley is a civil rights attorney in Oakland, California, winner of the National Lawyers Guild Champion of Justice Award and a founder of Haiti Emergency Relief. I hope you enjoy this conversation between Bill Ayers and Walter Riley. Side note, I'll be popping in periodically to add context and commentary that will hopefully help you follow the complicated and fraught history of a nation born of the first successful slave revolt. Okay, here's Bill Ayers in conversation with Walter Riley. 
I guess I'd like to begin by uh, asking you to talk a little bit about the current situation, which I think if you read the New York Times or listen to NPR, you'd be nothing but confused. So I'm looking to you for some clarity about what's going on in Haiti. And then perhaps after that, we can get back into the deeper history of U.S. engagement with Haiti. And maybe you could start, though, with the current moment. Well, in the current moment, uh, there is a lot of confusion. But what's happened right now is a struggle in the leading party in Haiti and in among the oligarchs and the rulers that are the uh, instruments of U.S. and international uh, exportation of Haiti. And that struggle is for power. It does not mean a difference for the masses in Haiti and certainly doesn't mean anything different for the popular movement as it stands right now. Jovenel Moïse was the president who was assassinated. He himself created a lot of terror in Haiti, created a lot of suffering, and was allied with many forces that created suffering. <clears throat> and even as they fought among themselves, they agreed by and large to uh, undermine the popular movement, and particularly the Lavalas movement, which is a movement uh, clearly that I support. Fanmi Lavalas is the left political party in Haiti, the popular movement that's been led by Jean-Bertrand Aristide since 1991, after he won almost 70% of the vote in Haiti's first ever free election. Is the movement that the uh, international community, the cabal of the US, Canada, and France, and their allies have been opposed to not because he was uh, some radical socialist, which I am not bothered by and would in fact have supported, and not because he was so much anti-American, uh, but that he was uh, for Haiti, for independence, for self-government, and for building an economic uh, condition where Haitians could begin to rely upon themselves because Haiti has tremendous resources and people and resources in, uh, in the ground. And uh, as a labor force, Haiti has been able to produce a lot of wealth since the revolution for so many people. Of course, his, historically was the richest uh, French colony. And in that sense, at that time, was one of the richest colonies in the world. But Jovenel Moïse represents that long line of folks that um, were exploiting Haiti with their allies in uh, the outside uh, nations primarily that has always been the U.S., Canada, and France. The U.S., because it's the leading force in economic exportation in the world, and uh, Canada is as its ally that has different associations with exportation and imperialism in various parts of the world. And France, because it was the original uh, colonizer of Haiti. But nothing can be done by France in this hemisphere because the U.S. dominates it and has to agree Anybody else has to agree. That's been true since the Monroe Doctrine. A good way to understand the Monroe Doctrine is to think about it as manifest destiny without borders. America's cultural consensus was that it had the God-given right to stake claim to indigenous lands and exterminate all the brutes. By the early 1800s, the United States economy had grown plump by binge feeding at the trough of chattel slavery and land theft. The Monroe Doctrine was essentially an announcement to the world that America had enough money and power to declare itself warden of the Western Hemisphere. And it did. Back to Bill and Walter. So talk a little bit about 
I don't think folks know the background of Aristide's election. And I mentioned earlier this kind of news coverage that's so bewildering. I was astonished that Aristide has not been mentioned in the New York Times, has not been mentioned um, on NPR or any of the other outlets, even though he was um, duly elected president uh, mm -hmm. for, for quite a while and leads this opposition movement. Talk a little bit about your involvement there and about Aristide. Well, he was elected twice, of course, and each time he was removed. <clears throat> the first time in the 90s during the uh, George Bush administration, and the people who removed him were military folks and allied with the U.S., even though Bill Clinton ushered him back in after his election. Let me help you get a sense of the timeline Walter is talking about here. In 91, Jean-Bertrand Aristide takes office as president of Haiti, elected with an overwhelming mandate from the popular movement. He promptly made or was forced to make a huge mistake by promoting the head of election security, a guy named Raul Cedras, to commander in chief of the Haitian armed forces. Cedras turned out to be a CIA operative, and eight months later, he led a military coup that sent President Aristide into exile. This is the voice of Bill Clinton just three years later in 94, announcing the removal of Haiti's dictatorship, while conveniently leaving out the fact that his predecessor, George H.W. Bush, was responsible for putting them in power in the first place. My fellow Americans, I want to announce that the military leaders of Haiti have agreed to step down from power. The dictators have recognized that it is in their best interest and in the best interest of the Haitian people to relinquish power peacefully, rather than to face imminent action by the forces of the multinational coalition we are leading. Our objective over the last three years has been to make sure that the military dictators leave power and that the democratically elected government is returned. This agreement guarantees both those objectives. I have directed United States forces to begin deployment into Haiti as a part of the UN coalition. The presence of the 15,000 member multinational force will guarantee that the dictators carry out the terms of the agreement. This agreement only came because of the credible and imminent threat of the multinational force. In fact, it was signed after Haiti received evidence that paratroopers from our 82nd Airborne Division, based at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, had begun to load up to begin the invasion, which I had ordered to start this evening. Indeed, at the time the agreement was reached, 61 American planes were already in the air. And this is Clinton speaking to the people of Haiti after the mission, spinning a nauseating narrative that the U.S. coalition were nothing less than saviors for returning Haiti to its rightful governance. He speaks of the violence Haiti has endured, but says nothing of the imminent barrage of death he had just authorized against them. For centuries, the Haitian people have known little more than blood and terror. You have been robbed of opportunity and deprived of basic rights. Your children have grown up with too much violence. Now you have a chance to make real the dreams of those who liberated your nation nearly 200 years ago. Here's Walter sifting through the propaganda and explaining the geopolitical reality of the situation. But that was because of the mass movement and not because of uh, Bill Clinton's uh, sudden support for democracy in Haiti. And there was a major movement internationally. Haiti was ungovernable without uh, Aristide. He was elected again in 2000 at the time of the second Bush. And as we remember in the second Bush administration, um, 
there were many issues around fair elections and stolen elections and stolen ballots and discarded ballots and national elections. And so Bush was installed by the Supreme Court. But that same Bush that was installed in crooked elections announced that he would not support the Aristide election. Now, in 2000, the spring elections, people ran for the National Assembly and various other offices. At that time, in that election, uh, Lavalas was re-able to, with the, under the leadership of Steed, gain leadership in most of the electoral uh, battles in Haiti at that time and won the leadership in the, the National Assembly in early 2000. And at that time, there was a dispute among a limited number of folks around elections in about eight national uh, seats. And among those, several of those were Lavalas people in a dispute. Well, the Lavalas party said at that time that those folks who were in disputed elections would stand down and their party members who had been maybe chosen uh, uh, to win with majority did step down, but they still had a leadership in the uh, uh, government at that moment. Uh, even though they stepped down, it was an opportunity for the uh, international media uh, corporate media, by and large, uh, in the U.S. and the West, to attack that mass movement and attack that election and saying it was corrupt, even though uh, those folks did step down that were in disputed elections. And Bush used that opportunity to then attack uh, Lava Loss as an organization, that same president who was in a very controversial election himself. In the fall of that year, there was the election for the president. And that's when Aristide stood for president and was elected overwhelmingly in the fall of that year. Months after the election that was being disputed, uh, the uh, harassment in the media and by in the U.S. State Department continued. And the Bush administration uh, refused to support the election uh, of Aristide. And they <clears throat> claimed that the elections were um, undemocratic even though the masses had had elected him and it was clear to all national media international media that Aristide was the most popular and so was Lava Loss. After 2000's election of Aristide a band of uh, oligarchs came together uh, to oppose Aristide and they were folks who wanted to in have safe haven for their exploitation of the workers in Haiti. Haiti Haitian workers were making a uh, dollar a day at best, and most often making less than a dollar a day uh, during that period. And Aristide's approach was to move from that level of poverty to some sense of dignity in work. He tried to develop uh, economic re uh, relations with manufacturing forces where workers would be paid more. And he did do some of that, but he was continually being attacked by the oligarchs, the international cabal of folks who did not want to see wages raised in Haiti and were not looking to support the change in development of lifestyle in Haiti. In that whole process, Aristide was engaged in building homes for people of Haiti. He was engaged in building uh, educational system and building literacy. Most of the folks in Haiti to this day, the, uh, the Creole speaking people are not readers. 
an Aristide Development National Reading Program. And that reading program began to raise the level of uh, participation in uh, reading programs for people across the country. A lot of community organizers became organizers for reading. Some of the most effective organizers from Lavalas and the movement today were people who had engaged in that national literacy program. Out of that whole program, the programs that had started under Aristide and had been promoted uh, since his first election and since the movement began uh, that he was leading, uh, literacy levels are, are were increased. Uh, more schools were built during that period of time than in the entire previous history of Haiti and to this day. Uh, Aristide uh, helped to build some more jobs, as I say, and he began to build the university at, at Aristide and a foundation that was playing a leading role in economic and political and social development in Haiti. He was uh, primarily a community organizer of the kind of work that we do across the country, the kind of community organizing that you engaged in in Chicago, mm -hmm. education, housing, healthcare issues. Um, he was engaged in raising the participation of the Rastafix in Haiti and trying to get a more, uh, more, more equal um, relationship between them and the the, uh, the economic system that was involved. Uh, one of his uh, approaches was to say that we all have to do this together, and he had a tremendous amount of support for that. Uh, the U.S. didn't want to see that kind of economic development. He was not opposed to the U.S., but he was opposed to the U.S. dominating at the rate and profit level that they were engaged in. Revelations also that the U.S. Embassy and contractors for U.S. clothing giants like Levi Strauss and Haynes signaled displeasure at Haiti's initiative to raise the minimum wage for factory workers. U.S. officials advised the Haitian government that a $5 per day minimum wage, quote, did not take economic reality into account, suggesting $3 per day instead. That was a news segment detailing how deeply the American corporate machine had its grips on Haitian fiscal policy fighting tooth and nail against the prospect of Haitian workers attaining even marginally better quality of life. I'll let Walter describe Jean-Bertrand Aristide's sadly futile vision for his people and the deeper history and significance of Haiti's struggle for economic self-determination. His approach was that we want to come out of destitute poverty and, and misery to just some sense of well-being. And because of that animus for any progress for, for, for folks of Haiti, the U.S. has been opposed to the development of Haiti since the revolution, the end of slavery, which the last battle was in 1804. But since the beginning of that slavery vote in 1791, opposed to it, they didn't want to see the example of Haiti. In the early uh, 1800s, Haiti was like too much of the developing movements for liberation in the world. Like some people have looked at Cuba in more recent times, Haiti offered support to every uh, developing community movement in the world uh, by sending uh, advisors, troops, skilled, uh, experienced, even to Greece, uh, for example, and to other places in Africa and Latin America. Haiti was the spearhead that uh, led to the successful revolution of Simon Boulevard. Uh, Boulevard was defeated a number of times uh, and he ended up in Haiti, and in Haiti he got the military training that became the success of the revolution in South America. But not only did he get training, he got lots of Haitian troops, because Haitians put mm -hmm. their boots on the ground, uh, men and women, mm -hmm. in South America. And the only thing they ever asked was not for pay, because Haiti provided money for the revolution, but that you free 
every uh, mm. every slave that you come in contact with in every slave nation. That didn't necessarily but, happen on the boulevard, but uh, that right. was Boulevard's commitment and promise. Bill and Walter are touching on an important connection between Haiti's historic military alliance with Bolivia and U.S.-Bolivian relations today. In 2019, the U.S. overthrew President Evo Morales, adding Bolivia to its long list of regime changes in South America and the Caribbean. You're about to hear the voice of Glenn Greenwald, the journalist who won a Pulitzer for exposing U.S. corruption by reporting on information made public by Edward Snowden. He makes it pretty clear that the propaganda playbook used to justify overthrowing Haiti's governments has been recycled by the U.S. many times, including in Bolivia just two years ago. Now, this other prong of foreign policy propaganda that the U.S. has been drowning in for decades is one that got applied to the example of Bolivia and is very common. Constantly throughout the Cold War, whenever the CIA would topple a democratically elected regime and replace it with right-wing dictators, right-wing repressive uh, factions, the U.S. media would use that same Orwellian formulation that was used for Bolivia. They would claim that the coup against the democratically elected leader was not an attack on democracy, which is by definition what it is when you have a coup against a democratically elected leader. They would portray it as a pro-democracy effort, an effort to save democracy from the democratically elected leader. We saw this over and over. Next, Bill and Walter take us back to the revolutionary birth of a black nation and explore why freedom really ain't free. Go back to Toussaint and go back to the Haitian Revolution because you mentioned that in many ways the threat was that it was a model. Here the United States is a slave state in those days, right? The United States yeah. is building all of its wealth on, on theft and genocide and slavery. And here's a black nation taking control of its own lives, uh, its own destiny. And th the fear of that, certainly in the United States, but you're saying throughout Latin America, throughout the world, was that it put the lie to the fact that folks couldn't run their own affairs. And it was a major frontal challenge to the enslavement of human beings. Absolutely, absolutely. Haiti may be the only successful slave revolution in history. The uh, serfs mm -hmm. rebelled in, in the Eastern Europe and Russia, but they were not successful in overturning the government. And there was no uh, successful slave revolution anyplace else. But Haiti is the one, one model. Uh, before the uh, revolution that ended slavery in 1804, uh, Haitians were involved in the United States. Haitians also escaping slavery and coming to the U.S., the uh, capital, the United States capital, D.C., was built by the hands of Haitians and modeled by Haitians in addition to other slaves, but there, were, there was Haitians, Haitian models. The Statue of Liberty that stands for so much to so many people was given to the United States because of the exportation of Haiti. And what it stands for in Haiti is a symbol of money stolen from Haiti, the blood, and tears and flesh of Haitians to build that monument mm. to uh, the relationship between France and the United States. And every time you look at it, you need to see that aspect of it. Haiti, when it's won its independence and had a successful slave revolution, they, they, uh, France demanded reparations from them. Isn't that 
Well, you know, that's it's very clear about it in Haiti, but it happened in the U.S. The United States government paid reparations to the slave right. owners and black folk had to be part of playing that. And uh, our freedoms were not granted uh, for uh, many years because of the need for the individuals in various places to repay their masters. But in Haiti, it was uh, the national policy of, the, of France and the U.S., to ensure that the Haitians who had gained independence and were in control of the country, which is different from other places, but in control of the country, that they had to repay France for the loss of their property, slaves. That money was extracted from Haiti and it continued up until 1948. And the only way that money could be uh, collected was through U.S. military, because it was, again, again, remember, the U.S. had control of this area. And because the Haitian ex-slaves, enslaved people becoming free, defeated the most developed military power in the world at that time. And their allies, they defeated France, which is the strongest military power that existed at that time comparable at the time to the U.S. domination and the U.S. military domination at this moment. But they defeated France. And in defeat of France, it was possible for the U.S. then to acquire the uh, Louisiana Territory because France could no longer defend it, could no longer control it, and did not have the money and resources and military power to control that. So the U.S. just basically took it from France in a negotiated agreement. And part of these uh, relationships between the U.S. and France was the U.S. was would enforce the uh, stealing of the money from Haiti. That is, they would enforce the demand for reparations to France. And they enforced it with gunships. Walter says that although Haiti was able to defend itself against the formidable British Navy at the time, they were still in the seedling stages of sovereignty. Haiti had to pick its battles wisely and chose to keep paying France reparations to avoid a world war with its allies who are hell-bent on smothering the beacon of hope Haiti represented to enslaved people still in the grips of colonial domination throughout the world. So Haiti was not able to fight a world war against all of these enemies, and they began to pay. They collected taxes from the country, and they collected taxes from their resources. That meant that they could not build the schools that they wanted. They could not build the uh, hospitals that they wanted to build. They could not build the infrastructure of the country because the resources were being depleted to pay these reparations. They built some military structures also to try and protect themselves. So the city, you know, there's a citadel and various fortresses that were built for protection and different levels of political development among the leaders. But by and large, they, uh, they all agreed that they could not withstand a military attacks. That is important. And then the U.S. occupied Haiti in the 20th century for a couple of decades, right? Yeah. Well, the U.S. forces were in Haiti a number of times. But yes, again, after an assassination of a, of a Haitian president, uh, the U.S. went in in 1915 and took all of the wealth from the Haitian banks and transferred them to the United States. They took gold out of Haiti and brought it here to the U.S., to U.S. banks and had control of it. They took land from Haitians. They took land from some of the lead major uh, Haitian landowners, including uh, Haitian small farmers. And they gave land to uh, allies of the United States. I find this headline in the New York Times baffling. Haiti asks U.S. to send troops as crisis deepens. You know, I mean, it's, it's staggeringly unbelievable that right. a headline like that on the front page, as if the U.S. is some kind of neutral, benign force. Um, 
the U.S. has sent troops to Haiti again and again, but right. always on the side of exploitation. Of exploitation. And, the, and in 1915, the U.S. government ensured that the forests of Haiti were cut down. They also planted rubber trees and made profit out of it and developed their own countries. They used it to ensure the war effort that came after 1915, and they used many of the islands for that purpose. Then after, when the U.S. left Haiti, interestingly enough, they cut down all the trees they had planted to make profit out of. And now the national history that they perpetrate is that uh, Haitians are burning their own trees because there are folks who make uh, charcoal but uh, they didn't burn down the forest or tear down the forest to make the charcoal. The forests were depleted by the United States and replanted for profit. And then when those trees were cut down, Haiti was still deforested. Walter brings us back to the present day and acknowledges how all those decades of foreign intervention and exploitation has made functional self-governance from Haitian leaders of fantasy at best and a cynical afterthought at worst. Now, not that the Haitian governments that have existed after uh, the U.S. left Haiti have been models for the interests of the people of Haiti. They have generally carried out policies that supported the offshore profit-making and exploitation of Haiti. And, and again, many of those same people who were brought in and given land in 1915 became leaders uh, and prominent members of the oligarchy. And you can look at some of those names and see that and know who they are and where they come from. But... Uh, just uh, the central to the New York Times headline is that uh, Prime Minister Joseph asked the U.S. to come into Haiti uh, because he wants to declare himself the leader of Haiti at this point, and he's getting the support of the U.S. government. Uh, but he has no base in Haiti. There is no infrastructure that's below him that he could guarantee that he could carry out uh, an administration of Haiti. And because he has no base, his only way of being in power in administering uh, in Haiti would be the U.S. That's why he called in the U.S. At this point, many of the other forces, even uh, forces around the oligarchy, are not in favor of the U.S. invading Haiti again because they want their own particular political power. But they are, are, there will be some unity around this because the U.S. State Department is very powerful and they work in all those sectors, even among the sectors who are warring against each other. Um, but again, it's important to note that the New York Times did not carry the story that this guy is unpopular, that he doesn't have any base of support, that he has no infrastructure that could make him the president or as prime minister or the administrator of Haiti uh, without the U.S. Uh, and that's right. what they are in now engaged in this struggle around who is going to be the uh, the leader of the, of the nation. And that's the internal battle again. And in, uh, it's uh, interesting uh, for us to talk about it or maybe speculate who's doing what and what's happening. But uh, it's a distraction from understanding what's happening and supporting and being a part of the movement, the popular movement in Haiti. And the more time that's spent on these discussions, the more that we we forget that there is a popular movement where people are trying to to organize themselves around uh, health care issues with the COVID right now, organize themselves around schools and organize themselves around you know just their economic interests. And the, the struggle uh, to get goods to market, uh, U.S. markets have been flooding Haiti. Rice, for example, flooding Haiti when Haiti used to be the rice basket of the area can produce more rice uh, than Haitians need. But at this point, because the markets have been destroyed over a long period of time uh, by planned policy, Hill, uh, Bill Clinton uh, dumped rice and gu guaranteed rice was dumped in Haiti from U.S. markets to destroy mm -hmm. the rice market uh, and the rice farmers, and uh, which is 
long-term impact because all those farms uh, failed and all those people on those farms and all those families on those farms were not able to survive economically. Uh, Bill Clinton later apologized for that. Here's former President Bill Clinton in front of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in 2010. Since 1981, the United States has followed a policy until the last year or so we started rethinking it. We rich countries that produce a lot of food should sell it to poor countries and relieve them of the burden of producing <coughs> their own food. So thank goodness they can leap directly into the industrial era. It has not worked. It's maybe been good for some of my farmers in Arkansas, but it has not worked. It was a mistake. It was a mistake that I was a party to. I am not pointing the finger at anybody. I did that. I have to live every day with the consequences of the lost capacity to produce a rice crop in Haiti to feed those people because of what I did. Nobody else. Uh, but he knew at the time, you know, he studied economics in England. He knew at the time what that impact was going to be and his advisor knew what that impact would be. And crocodile tears after the crocodile has eaten has no real meaning in the world of right. humanitarian struggles. You know, Walter Riley, you are a well-known attorney, a civil rights attorney, human rights attorney. What made Haiti so compelling that you have devoted so much of recent years in Haitian solidarity? What was, what was so compelling for you? How did you get involved? Mm -hmm. How can other folks get involved? I became um, involved with Haiti because I grew up in the South and I was not far from Haiti. The uh, Black community in the town of Durham, where I came from, was called Haiti. And that's also how many Creole speakers historically called Haiti. Uh, there was some presence of that. I also was aware of Toussaint Louverture. I was aware of the Haitian Revolution. And it inspired me, even with all of the negative information that was being given to me growing up in the South, segregated South and segregated schools, that uh, Black folk had bailed and I wanted to rebel. I wanted a different system. I wanted a society where Black folk were, were able to live without the stigma of racism, uh, the stigmas of inferiority that was complaining. I mean, the idea of growing up where people tell you that you are inferior, where the educational systems tell you that you are inferior. Right. And whenever I think of it. Uh, that it is it comes back to me and what it means for the economic exploitation, uh, humiliation, the the level of indignities that can be uh, visited upon you when you live in a society such as that. And I was, as a very young person, determined that that world around me had to change, that my visions had to be different. And so I paid attention to what was happening in Africa, uh, what happened in the Congo, I paid attention to the liberation struggles that were developing in those uh, in those early years. I paid attention to the kind of liberation struggles we were engaged in here. I knew that we had to go beyond. I was an organizer of sit-ins and uh, organizing voter registration, but I knew that we had to go beyond all that in the United States, that we could not reach our level of economic um, uh, independence. We could not reach our level of uh, ending exploitation. We could not reach our level of the ending the moral indignations that we had to suffer every day uh, without a change. And so I paid attention to what was happening in the world. And that's good advice right there for young people and for all people. Pay attention. Open your eyes. See the world for what it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
out of that, you know, I became involved in many movements, uh, many aspects of the movement, the movement from the 60s, which you are so well aware of, and no doubt your audience is so well aware of, uh, that we were all engaged in. Uh, but all those struggles were struggles against uh, white supremacy, against economic domination, against imperialist uh, tentacles in our own communities, not just around the world, but how they infected our community. And that, uh, aware that we could do nothing without solidarity. Uh, because Haiti was a black country, because racism was so apparent in the history of the way the West, the U.S., had related to Haiti, so apparent in the way uh, much of our media related to Haiti, uh, that I'd be paid, paid more attention to it. Uh, after the uh, growth of the anti-apartheid uh, movement of the 80s, Haiti became one of the places I began to pay attention. So it was beyond just a black nationalist movement. It was not that. It was beyond just a movement uh, in its one country. It was beyond that because historically Haiti had been part of the struggles around the world. And we have lived in a period where Haiti has been isolated. Uh, and I think that to some extent, we all have to be responsible for that level of isolation yeah. because the people's well, movement is bigger yes. than their movement, is more powerful, and that we have to be aware of that. That's right. Well, let me ask you two last things, and I, I, I could go on for hours with you, and, and we will when I see you in the Bay, but let me ask you two things. One is, is there a couple of things people should read that are important, foundational in understanding Haiti? And secondly, how can they contact you? How can they contact Haitian Solidarity? Okay. I am a co-chair uh, and founder of the Haiti Emergency Relief Fund. And this fund, we put it together after the coup, around the coup of 2004. And the Haiti Emergency Relief Fund can be found at HaitiEmergencyRelief.org. We are all volunteers and money doesn't get spent on our operational costs. All the money goes to the movement to Haiti. But what we do is we try and give support to, and we do give support to people on the ground who build movements. We don't give supports to uh, NGOs. We don't give supports to folks who are looking just for jobs. We support schools. We support water projects. We support farmers who are saving seeds, uh, farmers who are fighting Monsanto. Haiti, by the way, the farmers resisted Monsanto. Uh, not too many places in the world they have been able to resist Monsanto. At uh, various times in various Haitian governments, part of the International Monetary Fund's approach is they have not been able to uh, provide water to uh, farmers in certain sectors in certain areas. And in many cases, they were requiring farmers to pay exorbitant amounts of money to get water. And we have paid for and helping to develop water resources in Haiti. We have helped Excellent. to pay for uh, programs that de develop sanitary toilets in Haiti. We pay for programs that keep market women buying their products. We have paid for and organized community organizers who uh, had to get their food to market from the mountains and had no ways. And women would get up at 12 o'clock at night to walk to the market to be there at eight o'clock in the morning. And we provided uh, mountain transportation donkeys and mules that made it Beautiful. easier to carry loads and uh, quicker walking and through those mountain mm. passes. Small things, but big things. Very inspiring, very fantastic. Before we leave, one or two things folks could read to catch up with Haiti? Well, the uh, things that President Aristide has, has written, I think are very important. I think there's a, there are a number of books that he has written. Uh, one of the books that he's working on, that he's been publicizing a lot more recently, is uh, Decolonizing the Mind. 
and you know, some of the things he's been teaching. Uh, he developed that when he was in in um, uh, in exile in South Africa. That decolonizing the mind is an important uh, philosophical approach, practical approach, everyday work approach to what it means to be in struggle against uh, the colonizations that have come from economic drives of the Western world and what we do in our communities and what they do in Haiti. And that is lessons that we can learn from each other. What I think everyone in those books uh, would be uh, by Paris and Aristide has been important. I really appreciate you and I appreciate this work. And I think that, you know, one of the things you and you were talking about, Aristide's latest book or the one he's publicizing, Reminded me of Bob Marley's line, you know, emancipate yourselves from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds. Absolutely. And it's very Frarian. It's very, um, and it's very much in the spirit of every revolution that strives for enlightenment and liberation. And uh, I think this is just so deeply important. I've admired this work for so long, but I'm so glad you could explain it to us. But thank you for doing this. And thank you for taking the time, Walter Riley. Thank you. I, j I just wanted to say uh, that is clearly uh, the uh, struggle in the uh, oligarchy right now is who's going to run Haiti to exploit the people. And it's yeah. important for us to know that uh, if you have all the time in the world, uh, most of your time should be spent understanding what is happening on the ground with the popular movement and figuring out how to support that. I love it. Thank you so much, Walter. Okay, folks. Let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our freedom dreams. Let's try to stay all the way human. Thanks to our friends at the Dazzling Podcast Ergo and to Malik Alim, producer, co-conspirator, friend, comrade, and engineer. This episode of Under the Tree was written and hosted by Bill Ayers and by me, Malik Alim. Theme music is by Tom the Night Watchman Morello. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Under the Tree wherever you listen to podcasts. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life a map to the new world.